thanking God for all that he's allowing us to do, his goodness and his love. And uh, this week, um, we're doing the second part of our series on the law. And it's uh, a little bit of a difficult thing to teach because um, there's so much misunderstanding of what the Old Testament really means and how do we apply it today in our lives and how does it relate to the New Testament. But I'm going to start off with a very interesting scripture. John chapter 1 verse 17 says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, on the face of it, that's, in my view, a strange scripture to say the law was given by Moses. Didn't the law come from uh, God on Mount Sinai? Why does it say the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. We're going to look at that and see if we can uh, come to an understanding of what that scripture really is trying to tell us. And one of the big things about the Old Testament and the New Testament that people stumble over is the great difference in the portrayal, it would seem, of God's character. How in the New Testament, he seems so loving and merciful. And in the Old Testament, it's always... uh, death and and, and harsh punishment. So why is God's relationship to man in the Old Testament so seemingly different from the New Testament? Well, the honest um, examination is that it turns out if you actually look at Scripture, it's because God rarely dealt directly with men. Once they were eliminated or cast out of the garden, you'll see that God related, especially in the Old Testament, through intercessors, through mediators, and very rarely on occasion did God directly deal with men. And of course, we have um, how in the Exodus, God gave the first Ten Commandments, and this was revealed in the New Testament, that it was there to highlight sin. It was not there to say, okay, this is what you, you absolutely are going to have to do. That's the way it was taken. But Paul reveals in the New Testament, it was there to show us how impossible it was to be perfect under the law because people thought that if you did it outwardly was enough, but Jesus revealed that it was even in your very thoughts, what you thought internally. So the difference in the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, is a difference of relationship. And uh, as I said The relationship in the Old Testament was through intermediaries, mostly angelic mediators. And, of course, God used human mediators, the prophets, Moses, judges. And the mediators had the power in the Old Testament to interpret the law. Now, you may say, really? Well, we're going to look at that and uh, we'll go to some scriptures to, to show that. But whenever... Anytime anyone could get directly to God, whenever there was a a cry for mercy directly, there was always mercy. We can see this probably most prominently in the very first um, uh, murder, which was Cain killing his brother. In Genesis 4.14, it says, Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. Now, the most amazing thing is, 
that Cain deserved death. He had killed his brother. But here he asked God for some mercy, some some um, leeway in the judgment. First of all, God does not kill him, but then God allows him to uh, to live. In Genesis uh, 4.15, it says, And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. This whole story really is amazing because... Remember now, it takes place in the Old Testament, and yet here we have God uh, not pronouncing a, an immediate death sentence upon Cain. In fact, giving him a mark to escape judgment while he is alive. Now, why is that? We're going to look at that. But the example here is that Cain approached God directly and was able to receive mercy. I think that's amazing because it seems to be even Old Testament, we see that works out in the case of David when he approached God directly after uh, Nathan the prophet confronted him with all his sins. He received mercy. But the case in David was that he truly repented. And we can look at Psalm 51 for that. So there is always mercy when we can get to God directly. In First Chronicles um, 21, 15, we have another time that David messed up and uh, he had numbered Israel without um, doing the offering that he should have done, which was called for under the law because all of the firstborn belonged to God and he did not do that. And because of God, that, the judgment was pronounced upon uh, David's kingdom. And let's read it, First Chronicles 21, 15. But even there, David approached God directly, and God sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord with beheld, and he repented him of the evil. What this is saying is that God changed his mind. And the reason was is because David had appealed to God directly for the judgment. God gave him a choice. You could fall into the hands of your enemies, or you could choose to be punished directly by me. And David was very wise in this because he knew that if he chose God, there was a, a possibility of mercy. And, it, and this exactly is what happened. The Lord beheld and he repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed it, it is enough, stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And, of course, we know the story because this threshing floor was in a high place uh, on the mount where eventually the temple would be built. First Chronicles 21, 13. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let me fall now into the hand of the Lord, for very great are his mercies. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So we see, even though the Old Testament uh, seems extremely harsh, it's because of the relationship or lack thereof of the supplicant. Most of the people who um, had great uh, judgments against them, they were not being judged directly by God. They were being judged by man. We see this. But let me not fall into the hand of man. See, God gave the law 
to make sin plain. That's what Paul uh, writes about in, in Romans. Let's, let's look at that. Romans 7.10. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. In the Amplified Version, it says, and the very commandment which was intended to bring life actually proved to bring death for me. For sin, seizing the, its opportunity through the commandment, beguiled and completely deceived me and using it as a weapon killed me. In other words, separating me even further from God. That which is good, and I, it here says in brackets the law, then became death to me because it showed exactly how sinful I was. But sin, in order that it might be revealed as sin, was producing death in me by using this good thing, this is the amplified version, as a weapon, so that through the commandment, sin would become exceedingly sinful. In, in Romans, he says that before the law, uh, sin was not accounted. It was not written down. That doesn't mean that sin was not going on. God was not writing it down. It was not being accounted for. But the law came to make it very plain, to, 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 to in other words, put a bright line under what mankind was doing. And, of course, this then brought forth or justified death because it was the sin of the garden that made Adam and Eve lose immortality. Immortality. We'll come back to that in a minute. But let's for a little bit take a little detour and let's speak about what the meaning of a law is. In the natural world, a law is something uh, or a statement about something that is observed that doesn't change. It's a statement that encapsulates uh, an observance. For instance, uh, if you throw a stone up, it's going to come down because of the law of gravity. And a law, by definition, has to be unchanging, invariable. It can't be uh, working here and then over there it works different. It has to be the same. Um, so it's always the same when we define a law. Gravity does not change because I go to a, a different city. And so a law is something that is unchangeable. Now, in science, they find that these laws uh, produce uh, four forces. And uh, I'm just going to go over them because this, this in, in the physical, has a, has a, a metaphor in the spiritual. So the scientists have discovered through all of their experiments, they believe that there are four, at present, fundamental forces. And each force, then, is derived from a physical law. And the physical law describes how the force acts. And each force, then, to act has to be transmitted or mediated by something. And in the physical, the scientists uh, say that those are particles. Uh, for a force to be transmitted, there has to be a medium or something that transmits the force. If you push someone, the medium is your hand. There is a transmitter of the force. So there are certain analogies that we can take from the physical laws that actually apply also in the spiritual. Now, it's interesting how they name these laws. Of, of the four of them, of course, the one that we're all familiar with is gravity. But it is actually the weakest of the four laws of nature that scientists have uh, been able to uh, determine. So there is a force, they call it the strong force. And this is the force that binds the inner part of an atom together. 
And it is the, what keeps the protons and the neutrons bound together in the innermost part of an atom. And they, they believe that the force that does that is transmitted through a particle they call the gluon because, of course, it glues the center of the atom, the nucleus, together. And then there is something called the weak force. And the reason why they call it the weak is not because it's weak, but in comparison to the strong force, it's much much uh, smaller. And that is the, the force that holds the electron around the nucleus. And the particle that they, they, they have um, devised that transmits that force is called a boson. And then there is the electromagnetic force. And this is the force also that we're familiar with that gives right, rise to light and to heat. And the particle that you might be familiar there with is called the photon of light. And then finally we have the force of gravity which is the thing that holds the planets and the stars together and although they've never found it they believe that there is a mediator of that force called a graviton. Now why am I telling you about all of these um, uh, natural forces? Because the laws of gravity, the laws of, of the universe, the physical secular laws are parallel, paralleled in the spiritual uh, the physical laws define, of course, the physical objects, and just the same, there are spiritual laws that operate under uh, a similar basis. So the whole concept when God created the universe is he created a law by speaking something into existence. When he said, let there be, he was creating and commanding a law into existence. And that law produces or has with it or gives rise to a force that carries out the law, and it requires a mediator. So let me go over it again. A law gives rise to a force which requires a mediator. So physical laws define relationships between physical things, but there are spiritual laws that define relationships among spiritual objects, and that's why we see in... Uh, uh, Hebrews, it says, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, sorry, Colossians, that are earth visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. So we see that there are other laws that we may not have uh, perceived that it work in the spiritual realm. Verse 17, and he is before all things and by him all things consist. Colossians 1, 15 to 17. So we see that the physical laws operate under these rules that the law gives rise to a force which needs a mediator. And I said all of this because I want to speak about the spiritual laws. Now some laws, the force that they exhibit are attractive. Some laws, the force that they exhibit are repulsive. We can look at gravity as being an attractive law. It pulls things together. So when we go to the spiritual, it operates the same way. There are spiritual laws that can be repulsive. And of course, the one that we are familiar with is sin. Because sin is a force of separation between the sinner and the Savior. It separates. Sin separates. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. So I want you to think of the spiritual law of sin in this same way as we looked at the physical. 
So he drove out the men and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So what this is telling us is that when uh, man sinned, there arose a force that separated him from God. And the, the mediator or the transmitter of those forces were the angels, the cherubims. They were the, the mediator of the, the, the transmission of the separation of sin. He put cherubims there to keep man from coming back into the garden. Hebrews 9, 7 says this, But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. Once mankind had sinned, it was not easy for someone to come back into God's presence only with a covering uh, that could get beyond the veil. And that's what Hebrews 9 is saying. So we see in the Old Testament that the force of sin was one of separation and the mediators to... Uh, to put that force into action were the angels. In fact, once Israel was taken out of Egypt, God gave them a special angel that was going to be their mediator of the law. In Exodus 23.20, God is speaking to Moses and says, Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Verse 21, beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions. The mediator of the law, the particle that that transmits the force, has no choice about its job. It has to transmit that force. In this case, the spiritual transmitter or mediator was this angel, the angel of the Lord. Beware of him. And obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions. Why? For my name is in him. For my name is in in him. And so God's uh, divine name was somehow related to this angelic being. And because of that, he had no choice but to be the transmitter of the force of separation whenever Israel broke the law. Uh, and in the Old Testament, he is called the angel of the Lord, Ha-Malak Elohim. Uh, and in the New Testament, we learn more details about this angel when Stephen is before the Sanhedrin uh, council and he's recalling the history of Israel. In Acts 7.30, he gets to the point where Moses is, uh, comes across the burning bush. And he says, but when 40 years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. What this tells us is that the voice and who spoke to Moses, according to um, the New Testament here, was the angel of the Lord. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight, and as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came unto him. You see, this is what happened when you sinned, you were, you were going to have to experience the force of separation. And this was carried out by the angelic mediators. Going back to the scripture in First Chronicles 21, where God had sent the angel to mediate the punishment, 
the Lord beheld and he repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed it, it is enough, stay now thine hand. And we're given who this angel was. It's the same angel. The angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. But these angelic mediators, um, in the end, could not really give the proper image of who God was. That's why we, say, we see that the Old Testament is so different in appearance from the new. They could give no mercy. They could give no grace. In Hebrews it said that, that every, um, uh, every word received a just recompense of reward. It was, it was without mercy. That's why the law seems so harsh because of who was mediating it. The force that was mediating the law was the angelic beings. But God was not pleased with them. In Psalms 82, we we see an oblique reference to that, speaking to these beings. How long will he judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Some of the angelic beings that had been given charge rebelled. Verse 6, I say ye are gods, little g, and all of you are children of the Most High. In the Hebrew, benai Elohim. In, In this sense, they are sons of God in that they are a special creation, but they are not sons of God in his image. Verse 7, but he shall die like men. This shows that he was not speaking to men and fall like one of the princes. In Job chapter 4 verse 18, he says, behold, he put no trust in his servants and his angels he charged with folly. God was not pleased with the angelic mediators and that's why the law failed because it was weak through the flesh and because we could not stand the force of separation. But the human mediators also failed. In Numbers 20 and verse 11, we see the one time after 40 years where Moses lost his patience. And you all know the story where they had come to him to ask for water. And he got so upset and angry with them because for 40 years God had miraculously provided water. And here this time, just as they're coming up to to cross over the Jordan, they're asking again for the same thing. And they provoked him so that he smote the rock twice, breaking the symbol that Jesus was only to be crucified once. And the Lord spake to Moses and Aaron, because he believed me not to sanctify me, to separate me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore he shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given him them. They could no longer lead the way. So the human mediators of the law also failed, which was Moses and Aaron. Um, we, we see in Matthew 19 that, that Jesus even uh, made a comment about some of the, the, the laws that Moses allowed Um, In verse 8, he says of Matthew 19, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. This is an example of what I'm saying, that the human mediators were allowed to interpret the law. In fact, even when Moses disobeyed God and struck the rock twice, water still came out. Why? Because God had put him in charge. Even though what he did was not what God wanted, God still honored the fact of his position. But from the beginning, it was not so. This is why the scripture says that the law came by Moses and grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Because when the law was given on the mountain, it was just really 
the expression of what God had summarized in Deuteronomy as loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. All of the rest of the other 600 uh, things that, ma- that they came up with was really man's addition to that. And the, the truth is, as we know the story, that they presented the wrong image because the true image of God is found in Jesus Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, we see that once the law was given, there was no punishment given with it, not by God, not immediately. And we see that the punishments came through an interesting story. Let's read it. Numbers 15.33. And they that found him gathering sticks. They found a man gathering sticks. This was the first time that the law was being tested. And they found someone who had broken the Sabbath law. They were working on the Sabbath And they brought him unto Moses and Aaron and unto all the congregation. They caught this man breaking the law. They brought him unto Moses and Aaron and they put him in ward. That means they they put him in a prison. And the reason is because it was not declared what should be done to him. Do you understand how momentous that verse is? What it's saying is that when God gave the Ten Commandments, he never gave a punishment. He never said what should be done if you broke the law. The same thing really goes back to Cain. Cain murdered his brother and because of that he brought consequences on himself. But God did not immediately kill him. Why? Why? Well, the the answer is that death was pronounced from the garden. All men were going to die. That's what Paul writes in Romans. God did not have to pronounce a death sentence because everyone was still going to die. Death passed upon all men. So there was no explicit punishment given when the Ten Commandments were given because the death sentence was already there. No one was going to live forever. And what if you lived 200 years? You were still going to die. So man executing someone... um, only hastened that that judgment, but even the persons who were good were still going to die. Death was upon all. Now, it seems as if the Lord then gives a punishment of stoning in verse 35. And it says, The Lord said to Moses, The man shall surely be put to death. And that's how the majority of people interpret it. That suddenly, now God tells them you have to stone him. But what I would like to to offer instead is that that Lord that's there is the angel of the Lord and not God directly. Remember, he said in, in Exodus, beware of him for he will not pardon your transgressions. He was, he was like the policeman. He could not change the law. All he could do was pronounce the judgment, which was coming anyway for everybody. And so the Lord said to Moses... This man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. And all the congregation brought him without the camp and stoned him with stones and he died as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, which Lord is this? Well, I believe it was the angel of the Lord in which God had said his name was in him. And that's why 
They can call him Lord with the capitalized meaning Yahweh. But it was the angel that God had put in charge of the camp to lead them and guide them in the way. This was not the, the, um, the, the God on Mount Sinai, the, the actual divine being who gave them the Ten Commandments because he did not give them the punishment at that time. Now, the proof that sometimes this angel could be called Lord and was not specifically identified with the full title of angel of the Lord can be found in that same scripture where David asked for mercy after numbering Israel. After God spoke to the angel of the Lord and said, stop, stop the judgment, the angel of the Lord, because he had that right, commanded Gad, let's look at it, First Chronicles 21, 18, then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and set up an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Now, let's really make this plain. This was not God speaking. The angel of the Lord spoke to the prophet Gad and told Gad to command David to build an altar. This shows you that the angel of the Lord had the authority to give commands. Now, when this command was given to David in verse 19, the prophet Gad did not differentiate that it was the angel of the Lord. Let's look at this. And David went up at the saying of Gad, which he spake in the name of the Lord. In, in other words, in the name of Jehovah. Although it was actually the angel that gave the command. When he told David, he just said, the Lord said to build this altar. We see this, and I did not put it in here, again when the commandment came to exact punishment on King Nebuchadnezzar. It says the command is by, the, this decree is by the holy ones. It was the angelic beings that had been put in charge of the earth, had the authority to execute judgment, but this was not God directly. That's why we see all of the, the, the um, punishments in the Old Testament being so harsh because God had warned them. He does not have the power to forgive sins. In fact, God allowed them to come up with all these other 600 and something regulations in quite an amazing way. Let's look at Ezekiel 20, 25. It says, wherefore I gave them also statutes, in other words, laws, that were not good. Now that's an amazing verse. And judgments whereby they should not live. In other words, God is saying, since they're going to be so rebellious, I'm going to let them come up with all these stupid regulations that they can't even function, that they can't travel uh, more than a Sabbath day's journey. And I polluted them in their own gifts in that, I, that they caused to pass through the fire all that opened up the womb. What he's saying is the good things he gave them, the gold and the silver they made into idols, and they polluted them by sacrificing their own children. So God was so angry, he said, I'm going to let you stay in your mess. I'm going to let you come up with all these laws that make it difficult for you to even live, that, I, that they might know that I am the Lord. Verse 24, because they did not obey my regulations, they scorned my, degree, my decrees by violating my Sabbath days and longing for the idols of their, their ancestors. I gave them over to worthless degrees. I let them come up with other stupid laws and regulations that would not lead to life. 
In other words, he allowed Moses to make laws. Now you begin to see why it says the law came by Moses, but grace and truth by Jesus Christ. I let them pollute themselves with every gifts I had given them, and I allowed them to give their firstborn children as offerings to their gods so that I might devastate them and remind them that I alone am the Lord. What it's saying is God has always allowed men free choice. And because they chose to be so wicked, he didn't step in and take away their free choice. He allowed them to do that, and but that meant that there was going to be a consequence of judgment. To show you this, we even uh, God says that it never came into his mind how wicked that they would get. Jeremiah 19 verse 5. They have built also the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings unto Baal, which I commanded not, nor spake it, neither came it into my mind. Again, it's same scripture in Jeremiah 32, 35, where God is saying how wicked man had become, Israel had become. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire unto Molech, which I commanded them not. Neither came it into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. So the law was there, as I said, to make sin uh, be defined, to be, uh, as Paul says, more sinful in the sense of making it crystal clear when people had crossed the line. And that's what he says in Romans. For when we were in the flesh... The motions of sin which were by the law did work in my members to bring forth fruit unto death. Remember what I'm saying now, how a law works. It brings forth a force. That's why he goes on to say that it's not subject to the laws of God. It's contrary to the the wishes and the will of God. So, but is the law bad? No. He, He goes on to say it's not bad. It was there to show us that we could not do it of ourselves. Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. No, the law was not sin. The execution of the law was not what God wanted, but the law itself was not sin. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. But sin taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. What he's saying, because it's a law, and because we are no longer in control of this flesh, the Bible says, to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servant you become. So once Adam and Eve started obeying what Satan said, they lost, they lost control, dominion over this flesh. And that's why now there is a law working in us. That's what Paul said. I find a law that works in me that when I want to do good, evil presents itself. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. So is the law bad? No, the answer is no. So how do we get out of this Law of sin. How do we break free of it? Paul in Romans 8, 1 says, that he goes on to say, there is therefore now no condemnation because he's found that the law of the spirit of life is more powerful. Now remember what I said about these four laws. They're not 
physical laws. They're not all equal in power. There, there are some that are weaker than others. And that we find that this is the same thing of the spiritual law. Although there, the law of sin and the law of the flesh is powerful, there are some forces that are much more greater than these laws. And we find that man has found a way to utilize some of these forces. Let's go back to the physical because this will give us an understanding of how God can break the law of sin and flesh. Now, as I said, the, of the four forces, they have found that the one that's called the strong force um, is tremendously strong. It has to be to keep atoms together, to keep the nucleus together. In fact, it's 10,000 million times stronger than gravity. That's how strong it is. But it has a weakness in that it only operates over a very, very, very tiny range. That means the strong force only has power over a small range distance. If you can get beyond that distance, the strong force loses its power over anything that it, uh, is near, that is not close to it. So we see that the strong force has a limited range. Um, and because of that, scientists were able one day to be able to split the atom, to break the power of the strong force. And when they did that, huge amount of energy was released. What they did, so when the atom was finally split, the power of the law that mediated or transmitted the strong force was broken. And enormous energy, what we call nuclear energy, was produced. Now I want you to think about that with regard to the laws and how that, that relates to spiritual laws. Let me say it again. So when the, the power of the atom was split, died in other words, the power of the law that mediated the strong force was broken. I hope you see where I'm going with this. So what is the range of the law of sin and death? We know I said that the range of the strong force, the physical force, is extremely small. And once you can get beyond that, it has no more power. So what is the range of the law of sin and death? Well, let's look at it. God said, the day thou sinnest, thou shalt surely die. That is the, the command that gives rise to the law of sin and death. And what is the range? What is the distance that that law has power over a human being? Well, it ranges over your human lifespan. As long as you're alive, the law of sin and death has power. As long as you are alive. Remember it said that the day thou sinnest thou shalt surely die. What does Jesus say about it? In Matthew 16, 25. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Now, the scientists were able to release the energy and the power of the strong force. In other words, by letting the atom die, by splitting it. And that's exactly what Jesus did for the law of sin and death. Let's look at it. So the range of the physical law is over the range of physical life. It's very short. Think about, though, a human life compared to eternity, compared to 
millions and millions of years, a hundred years is nothing. So the range of the law of sin and death is actually also very short. And what Jesus did was he broke the law and released all of the force that it had over your life. For by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. In other words, separated. Once he separated us, it broke the power of the law of sin and death by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, that veil, that power of separation that was mediated by the force of angels was split just like the Adam was split. And that's why when Jesus died, he broke the power of the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and because of sin condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, he died. And when he died, the force, the energy, the spiritual force that he released broke the law of sin and death. So just like, as I said, breaking of the strong force where enormous power is released, at the breaking of the law of sin and death, enormous power is released. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power in heaven, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And then he told his disciples, Go and tarry at Jerusalem until you be endued with power. Because of what he did, we now have the power over the law of sin and death. Hallelujah. And because of that, we have a new law that is much more powerful. The old law of sin and death was a, a force of separation. But the new law, the covenant of love, is a force of attraction. Hebrews 10, 14 says, How much more shall the blood of, the, of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, he is the mediator. He is the new force. He is the equivalent of the particle. He is the mediator of this new force of love that by the means of death, by splitting his own body and condemning sin in the flesh for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first law, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. See, in in a modern translation it says, but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better law. This law is the law of love, which is so much more powerful than the law of sin and death. And because the mediator of this law It's not the angels, it's not Moses, it's not any of the prophets, it's not even John the Baptist, but it's Jesus Christ himself. This law was established upon better promises. In Hebrews, the writer explains why this covenant, this law, generates a much more powerful force. 
For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself took part of the same, that through death, his death, he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to the bondage, to the bondage of the law of sin and death. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. He couldn't come as a uh, as an angel of the Lord or as a cherubim. But he took on him the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make reconciliation for the sins of the people. This is what it's all about. When he came, the spiritual law of sin and death was broken by the new covenant and the new law of love that is mediated by Jesus Christ himself. So likewise, we have to die to sin so that the law of the flesh doesn't have any power on us. And that's why Romans 6, 4 says, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. Symbolically, we die. This flesh dies so that Satan should have no more power, that that law of sin and death has no more power because this is a dead man walking. This is a temporary vessel. God is just energizing it just for the time when he calls us up, when the change comes. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. See, Paul knew the answer. Romans 8, 1. Verse, Romans 7 is explaining the law of sin and death. But he's explaining too that once we have symbolically died and associated ourselves with the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus, then Romans 8, 1 applies the new law supersedes the old There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. This law is the law of love. The most powerful force in the universe. It is what motivated God in even creating us. John 13, 34, a new commandment. Whenever there's a new law, there is a new force and there's a new mediator. A new commandment I give you, that ye love one another as I have loved you and that ye also love one another. Galatians 6, 2 says, bury one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Love. Love, the new force for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Corinthians gives us the love chapter, and I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to end with verse 13. There are three things that will endure. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. We should be the mediator with the Holy Spirit in us 
Christ in us, the hope of glory. We should now be the mediators of that force of love. That is what we have been called to, to now be the new image. The angels couldn't do it. The Old Testament prophets failed. Moses failed. Even John the Baptist at times had doubts and had to send to Jesus and say, are you really the one? But now through Jesus Christ, the power of the force of sin and death can be broken through the power of love and the mediation of Jesus Christ. I'm going to close this Bible study. I hope you will meditate upon this, how God's power of love through Jesus Christ, the mediator, brings us into a new covenant and a new relationship with God. Hallelujah. Father, we just thank you for all that you have done in our lives. Lord, for open our understanding, opening it to see the love and how you have worked. Even though at times we have felt alone, Lord God, we know that we were never alone. Father, Lord, let your word find good soil. Let it encourage our faith. Let it build us up, Lord, to see, oh God, that you are now the mediator of a new covenant. Hallelujah. And that your banner over us is love. We thank you for all that you have done, all that you're going to do. Lord, we look forward to your soon coming and we lift up your name and give you all the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.